Christ's name. Amen. You may have a seat. So, we need to remember that the words of the Bible are inspired. However, the chapter divisions are not necessarily inspired. And, and an important principle that we've been using as we've been in, interpreting the text is we've been looking for direct mention of or words from God that are, are directly stated to help guide us along. And what we're going to see is that in chapter 47, as we were reading, we didn't really see any direct reference uh, to God in chapter 47. Therefore, we will operate from chapter 46, verse 3, where we see God more specifically mentioned. And if you look, you can see 46.3 says this. It says, Then he said, this is God speaking to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. And we know that this is related to our chapter because we see this come to fulfillment here. In our text, in verse 27 of chapter 47, we see that it says this. It says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and were fruitful and became very numerous. Therefore, we can conclude that the point of our passage is going to have to do with verse, uh, chapter 46, verses 3 and 4 in particular. And it's largely going to, therefore, echo a little bit of last week's message. So here's, here's, here you go. Ready? Surprise. It's about the sovereignty of God again. <laughs> this week is also about God's sovereignty. However, there are some unique features that will come out in chapter 47. Last week, we kind of saw the beginnings of God's sovereign plan. We saw the start, them moving into the land of Egypt and kind of traveling over. But this week, we're going to see that God's, mess, uh, God's sovereign plan, it's going to continue. It's going to move forward. We'll see more specifically how sovereignty operates, how God's plan operates and moves. Now, we talk a lot about sovereignty here, but friends, this morning, I want you to know that the sovereignty of God is not just an abstract idea. It is a reality functioning in space-time, in our lives right now. Just like we read of God's plan coming to fruition in Genesis 47, in, in your life, in my life right now, God has an extremely specific plan that he is moving us towards as well. It is unfolding now as we speak. We will learn as we look at Genesis 47 what it looks like when God's plan moves forward. Now, various people, uh, wise men who have been training me and honing my preaching skill, tell me to let the congregation know how the passage is relevant to them. And I'm going to do that, but really I'm going to do it in a different way. My question, I'm going to ask you a question how is the sovereignty of God moving you along right now not relevant to you today? If there is a God with a perfect plan who is in control of your life, and if this is more than just an abstract concept, but this is real, then listen and learn about how God's sovereign plan works. What does it look like? What does he do? It's operating right now in our lives, friends. And then when we recognize it, we can see him. We can have greater faith in him. We can praise him, and we can worship him. 
That's the agenda this morning. We're going to see how God's sovereign plan moves forward, how it continues. In a real situation, in history with many real variables and people and moving parts. And we will see that. We'll see his wisdom and his power on display. And we will trust that the same sovereign God that we're learning about in Genesis 47 is the same sovereign God in our lives as well, moving us along. The goal is to leave this place with a greater understanding of God's sovereignty, a greater trust in his plan in our lives. And we're going to see really three aspects of his sovereignty that, that really come from the text. We're going to see that God's sovereign plan, firstly, it cannot be stopped. We'll also see that the sovereign plan involves blessing. And lastly, we'll see that the sovereign plan of God results in faith and worship. So let's jump into the passage. Let's look at this first point here that God's sovereign plan cannot be stopped. Now, in this, this moment here in Genesis 47, during this time, the, the human being with the most power was probably considered to be Pharaoh. He was arguably the most human, humanly powerful person alive, especially during the time of famine. Right? Egypt is the place with the food during a famine. Who's Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt. In human terms, he was a pretty important and powerful figure. Now remember, again, Hebrews were not particularly celebrated in this culture. Genesis 43, verse 32, we saw it was an abomination for the Hebrews to even eat with the Egyptians. Moreover, just a chapter ago in 46, verse 34, we saw that keepers of livestock were known as an abomination to the Egyptians. And if, if Israel and his family, they approached Pharaoh and said the wrong thing or behaved the wrong way, I mean, this, if, if they didn't have Joseph here, if God, you know, God sent Joseph ahead of them, it says in Scripture, if, if this was, you take God's hand out of the picture, I don't know how this would have ended. Thankfully, God placed Joseph before them. Jacob and his family had a God-ordained tie to Pharaoh. Moreover, Joseph was well-trusted. And Joseph even kind of primes by uh, giving, uh, you know, helping his family along the way at the end of chapter 46, telling them what to say. And now he's here is talking to Pharaoh, kind of uh, priming Pharaoh as well. It says in verse 1 that Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all they have are in the land of Goshen. He took five, uh, he uh, excuse me, my father, my brothers, their flocks, their herds, all they have are in the land of Goshen. He took five men among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. They said to Pharaoh, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Now remember Genesis, again, Genesis 45. God sent Joseph ahead of his family to save lives by a great deliverance. In 45.8, it even says that Joseph, in some respects, was like a father to Pharaoh. Now, this could imply that maybe there was a new Pharaoh on the throne and, uh, you know, Joseph kind of helped raise them, or perhaps not. Uh, we don't really know. But in any case, it certainly implies that Joseph is very well trusted. He is a, a figure whom the Pharaoh trusts a trustworthy advisor. And indeed, Joseph was wise and observant. He knows how things worked. He knows Pharaoh. He knows his family. 
Joseph, towards the end of chapter 46, he tells his family what to say when they're presented before Pharaoh because God gave Joseph wisdom and placed Joseph in the place where he was. God ultimately brought forth his sovereign plan through this association with, with, with Pharaoh. And look what God does. Look at how God has orchestrated this. Verse 5, here is Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh said to Joseph, The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. You see, no one could stop the plan of God. The most powerful man in the world at the time bends his knee before the plan of the Lord. And when God has a plan in place, it cannot be stopped. Proverbs 19 Verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Moreover, Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it where he pleases. Yes, it seems as if Pharaoh is the one making this decision here. However, again, God saw fit to direct the heart of Pharaoh to be favorable towards his people. The ruler, really, in this situation, was God. God saw fit to orchestrate all of this, to put Joseph in that place, in that association with Pharaoh, which the text clearly states was God's doing in 45 chapter, uh, chapter 45, verse 7. Without Joseph, who was placed there by God, who knows, Pharaoh would have treated these people like other foreigners at best, and perhaps even more poorly because of their cultural identity as shepherds. Moreover, Egypt themselves would have no food if, if God didn't place Joseph there because Joseph was the one who interpreted the visions. Joseph is a key figure who God used here. And I guess here's the point. One cannot deny that it is God who orchestrated Pharaoh's favorable decision towards Israel. God is the real one in control. They receive the best of the land. Moreover, think about this, they maintained separation from the paganistic practices of Egypt, settling in Goshen outside of the main cities. This was a grand orchestration by the Lord, and it implies that God has sovereignty over all of the fine details, over rulers, that no one and nothing can stop the plan that God has. Nothing can stop it. No one can stop it. Your boss at work obeys the sovereign plan. The wealthiest business owners in America, they obey the sovereign plan. The president of the United States, he has to obey the sovereign plan. Presidents of other countries, Putin, has to obey the sovereign plan. There is no escape from God's rule. And if God wants something to happen, it will happen, even if it seems very unlikely. Friends, recognize today that God's plan played out to the letter. And just like God directed Pharaoh's heart to this end, God's sovereign plan is playing out before our eyes now. And no one can stop it. It will move forward. He wanted to bless his people. They were blessed. Despite all of the unlikelihood of them being blessed, they were. And for us, friends, God has revealed much of his sovereign plan to us through his word, has he not? 
We are considered friends because he's revealed things to us, John 15. God in his, his grace has revealed important parts of his sovereign plan to us that will play out. And we have a promise that, the resurrection, that we will be resurrected with Christ just as he was and that he will reign on a throne and nothing, friends, can stop that plan. Rulers will submit to it. They must. Hopefully they submit to it in the way this Pharaoh did and they can be blessed. But regardless, they will submit. We know from the other end of the story, the Exodus, that the new Pharaoh submits as well. So not only can, and think about this, not only can no one stop the plan of God, but no thing can stop the plan of God as well. We already kind of alluded to the, the loathsomeness of being a keeper of livestock. Ironically, though, in this story, their own loathsome identity as shepherds was not merely coincidental, but it was actually the providential means God used to instantiate and move the plan forward. What was a negative by earthly cultural standards was a positive in God's plan. They, again, maintained holiness and separation from the paganistic practices by being loathsome shepherds who settled in the land of Goshen, outside of those main cities. Moreover, this loathsome status, as we read, gave them special privileges. For some, it meant employment during a worldwide famine. Verse 5, Pharaoh said to Joseph, let them live in the land of Goshen, and if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. What an honor you get to be in charge of the, the livestock of Pharaoh. And you see, friends, this is how God operates. This is what will happen when God sovereignly moves his plan forward. The things you think were negatives that are going to inhibit the plan that you're stressed about are actually a part of God's plan, and God is in complete control. They needed no dishonest, culturally witty ways to prosper. God said they would prosper, and so it happened against all odds. Their status, their nomadic ways, their occupation, all of these things that we would consider cons in our, you know, earthly wisdom were actually pros when they were placed in the great wise hands of our Lord. And he brings about his will. Not anything could stop this plan. Even the cultural mindset of, of Egypt bowed before the Lord's plan to bless Israel and his family. Nothing Likewise, friends, for us, nothing can stop the plan of God in our lives as well. The difficulties that we've encountered, the jobs that maybe we've lost that have been disappointing for us, cancer, illness, impoverished states that we find ourselves in, lowly status, maybe some sort of disability, all of these things do nothing to God's plan. Nothing. They can't stop it. In fact, you will be amazed at how God uses these things in, in your life and in my life that can be perceived as negatives to bring about his magnificent sovereign plan and perfect will. 
Those seemingly negative things cannot stop God's plan, and his plan doesn't depend on our status or our circumstances. And by the way, it's, it's amazing that when we understand God's sovereign rule, uh, that it depends on nothing that we are, really the pressure is off, isn't it? If I trust ultimately God's sovereign plan will come about no matter, no matter what, the pressure's off. I can stand here and I can be honest and I can say I am, I am wretched and I am imperfect and I am not the greatest speaker, but I can trust that despite my inability and my weaknesses that the Lord's plan will come about still. That is amazing trust. That is amazing, an amazing way that we can live right now. It's carefree in a good way, not in a lazy way but in a good way where you don't have to worry because God's plan is going to come about, friends. The status of the loathsome shepherds was actually God's way of maintaining holiness and separation as well as prospering his people with the best of the land just as he promised in 46, verse 3. Pharaoh's heart bowed before the plan. The rulers, you know, submitted to the plan. The negative status and circumstances bowed before the plan. Everything will bow before the plan. God's sovereign plan, it cannot be stopped. And friends, again, we know what that means for us. We've read, we've read the end of the book, haven't we? Cannot be stopped. Oh, Christ will return. Who knows? They might be firing nukes at him, whatever. And you know what? Nothing's going to stop his reign. Nothing will stop his reign. And we're a part of that. Let's live like that's true because, friends, it is. It's an unstoppable sovereign plan that God has but not only that, we also see that God's sovereign plan, it brings blessings. You know, we serve a God who's not only powerful and able to bring about his will, we serve a God who is good. We serve a God who wants to bless humanity. Evidently, God's people were greatly blessed in this sovereign plan. His will was to bless and here's what we see in verse 11, that Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, the, in the best of the land. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food. Now, let's pause and let's think about the situation here. I think sometimes we get a little too comfortable with the story. This is amazing salvation from catastrophe. Mind you, this is an ancient system. This is an unforgiving system. There's no welfare in place, no entitlements. There is nothing here, and there is no food. And he, in his sovereign plan, cares for his people amidst this sort of environment. He preserved his people amidst a worldwide famine, even through a foreign nation. Israel and his family, they have a place to live. Some, some had employment watching uh, the livestock of Pharaoh, as we said in verse 5. Moreover, they not only had food during this famine, but they prospered. They grew. And also here, think about th them in comparison to the Egyptian locals, right? This is their hometown. They're the ones who were a part of the nation that stored up the food. And let's see 
how, how they're dealt with. Let's, let's contrast here Israel and his family and the Egyptians and, and just be in awe at how God blesses his people. Verse 13, now there was no food in the land because the famine was very severe. So the land languished. All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? A pretty severe state they're in. They're talking about dying. For our money is gone. They're out of money. They've, they've spent it all already on the food. And Joseph says, here's Joseph's response, and we'll talk a little bit about how this is actually gracious on Joseph's part. But Joseph said, give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. Right? This is, this, this is a tough spot. Even in Egypt, the source of hope during this massive famine, their own people are asking for help and saying things like, we need food or we will die. We have no money. The Egyptians were required to pay with money and, and now with livestock. And moreover, their plight doesn't end there. It continues. Verse 18, when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. And the cattle are, are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. The Egyptians in their own country had to give up their money, their livestock, their land, and even themselves selling themselves as slaves to Pharaoh. They were impoverished in their own land. Now, why am I using this to support the point that God's sovereign plan involves blessing? Well, again, let's contrast this and see how God supplies for his own people. While these things are going on, Jacob and all of God's chosen family during this time are preserved, have employment, have residence in Goshen, and are well-fed for free. Imagine this situation taking, taking place. Like, let's say there's a worldwide famine now, and we have to travel to a foreign country like, I don't know, Iraq or something, and we go there, and that's the country that has the food. And we go there, and we live for free, and get extremely blessed, and the people who were originally in that country are hurting, right? Are, are, aren't, aren't receiving the... Uh, they're, they're impoverished in comparison, right? That's sort of what's happening here, right? This is, a, this is pretty out, this is, this is pretty amazing, really. Now, friends, we can, you know, we talk a lot about, again, the sovereignty of God here at this church, and simply put, it means that God gets to do whatever he wants. But it's important to recognize that God wants blessing for his people, abundant blessing for his people. God's sovereignty is not distinct from his goodness. Contrary to popular belief, God wants to abundantly supply for you. Yes, there will be trials, just as there was with Jacob and his family. He says so in verse 9. Difficulties and blessings are not mutually exclusive, though, friends. In the end, God has a plan, and that plan is a good plan. Even with all the trials, even with Joseph being sold into slavery, and amidst it all, here is the outcome of the sovereign plan. It's good when it comes to pass. One cannot deny, verse 27, they, that is God's people, acquired property in it, 
and were fruitful and became very numerous. This is how God's sovereign plan works. His plan is to bless his people. And as as Joey preached last week, do you believe that God has a fantastic plan for your life? Friends, don't worry. God cares deeply for you. Part of his plan is taking care of his people abundantly. And again, in the end, when all is said and done, we will be blessed. And not, not only that, if you are a follower, if a believer in Jesus Christ, you will live forever with him. Again, we said it's unstoppable, but it's also good. And it's, it's, we get to spend eternity with the Lord. This is the greatest blessing. He is the greatest treasure that he gives. Perhaps God's sovereign plan involves, involves for those who don't know him right now to come to know him, to be a part of this blessing. To be a part of this ultimate, unstoppable blessing of living forever and worshiping Christ. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ is God and came in the flesh to die and pay the payment for, the, for your sins, and then he rose again. And you can live with him forever in paradise. You will be a part of his people, his church, and you will be abundantly blessed beyond your wildest imagination. He greatly blesses people in this life, but all the more in the next for certain. That is how the story ends. We talked about that already. Now, next we see concerning uh, this, this another interesting point concerning a blessing in verse 7. Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. When the, uh, now, now, again, when the ancient reader heard this, Jacob is the patriarch, right? Their ears perked up. What's going to happen with this interaction? What's Jacob going to do? Verse 7 and 10 tell us, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now, to understand the weight of this, we need to keep some things in mind. One, uh, though Pharaoh was, during this time, a figure of extreme power, the book of Genesis is written to Jewish audience, okay? The reader sees God's people as extremely blessed. They see Jacob, again, as that patriarchal figure, extremely important. And for the original audience reading Genesis, there is... uh, this great figure here, Jacob, doing something rather unusual. He is the, you know, the patriarch of the family, and he's blessing Pharaoh. Some, some interesting things to note here. Hebrews 7.7 7 gives us uh, an idea of how blessings work. In Hebrews 7, we see a commentary on Melchizedek blessing Abraham back in Genesis 14, verses 18 and 20. 20, or chapter 14, verse 18 and 20. And Hebrews tells us that the lesser always receives blessings from the greater. And look at what is happening here. Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. Though Jacob, by mere physical comparison, is the needy one, really, since Jacob has the Lord, he is the great one. And so he blesses Pharaoh. And remember, when a patriarch blesses in this Hebrew culture, it was a big deal. It was huge. It was usually prophetic in nature. This is why all of the the sons sought after the blessing, right? Jacob himself deceived his father to get the blessing, right? The blessing was important. Next chapter, we're going to see that this idea of blessing from a patriarch is a big deal. 
It's huge. And this sort of really goes back to um, Genesis 12, verse 2. God is speaking to Abraham here. Um, but I think it's, it's rather relevant since he is sort of the first person to take the covenant, isn't he? Or to have, have this covenant that continues on with this family. And he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. You are blessed, but indeed you are a blessing. God granted favor to this ruler through Jacob and the Egyptians did survive. When God's sovereign plan is unfolding, everyone is blessed. Even, again, the common Egyptian folks were blessed. Joseph said, here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest, you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own seed of the field for your food and those of your household and the food for your little ones. So they said, here's their response, you have saved our lives. You have saved our lives. Now, as noted earlier, the Egyptians were not blessed in the same way, in the same sense as God's people, right? We use them to contrast. They had to sell almost everything. But God still used Joseph to save their lives, just as God had, had said would save the lives of many. Now we read again that there's this tax here, one-fifth one or 20%. And while we might feel kind of bad about that, believe it or not, that was an extremely low tax rate for this uh, particular time period in, in ancient culture. Uh, I think I was reading like Hammurabi's Code, which was very important in Mesopotamia, sometimes charged between 50 and 66% tax, okay? Uh, in a worldwide famine, Joseph is blessing people with smaller tax with food, okay? This, this is the point. This is why they tell Joseph in verse 25 that you have saved our lives. They're grateful. They're grateful. God gives common grace, does he not? And God saved the, even, even the Egyptians through Jacob and Joseph and these blessings. His people um, were blessed, but they blessed others. And that's, that's the point. What's our lesson, friends? That amidst God's unfolding sovereign plan for us, it's not merely for us to receive blessing, but for us to give blessing to those that we encounter. There are people, perhaps people who you would not expect to encounter, like a Pharaoh, for example. I don't know if Jacob expected to be in Pharaoh's presence 20, 30 years ago. Who knows? There are people that God is putting before us, that God has placed in front of you as a part of his sovereign plan for you to bless them. Part of God's sovereign plan could involve blessing that coworker or that boss or that relative. It may involve unlikely interactions. The blessing may be financial, might be with time or energy, perhaps and hopefully prayer on their behalf as well. And friends, we also know that we can offer the greatest blessing, the one that we have that is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We can offer that to people as well. Share with those around you. Jacob blessed even the pagan ruler Pharaoh. You were not made to simply hoard blessings. You were made to be blessed and to bless others. Friends, this week I challenge you, think of someone. 
someone you can talk to and bless, maybe with something financial, maybe with time, maybe with prayer, or, or most importantly, it should be with the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed for that person. Share this with them. That is a part of God's sovereign plan. He, we know it is because he tells us to do it. That's a good way to figure out God's will and plan. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to make disciples. He tells us to proclaim and preach the word. Of course, this is a part of his plan. But again, this is a blessing. This is a blessing, really, that we're offering people. And clearly, this story shows that God's sovereign plan involved blessing all. God's people especially, but then also others. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, God's sovereign plan, it brings blessing. Uh, In this last point, we're going to see that God's sovereign plan also results in faith and in worship. Now, know that 6-3, indeed, we know know 6 Chapter 6, verse 3 came to pass. They prospered in the land. Israel prospered and grew into a great nation in Egypt. Although there is something interesting here that we see at the end of chapter 47 that I, I would like to highlight. Here is the end of 47, verse 29. When Israel's time to dry, do, uh, die, not dry, die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said, Deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. When I lie down with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me with their, that is, um, his ancestors, in their burial place. He said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. What is going on here? What does this have to do with God's, God's sovereignty and his sovereign plan? Well, Jacob, in his last days, He wanted to make sure he was buried with his fathers. Now, I do not think it is a coincidence that Jacob wants this, or that his fathers happened to be buried back in the promised land, nor that we have oath-keeping in this scene that is reminiscent of covenantal features. One commentator even says that the phrase here seems to refer to organs of generation and also possibly the covenant rite of circumcision. In short, covenant is likely on the mind. And it seems pertinent that covenant with God would be on the mind of a dying man who believes in God, no? We also know from the next chapter, chapter 48, verse 4, that indeed, recollection of covenant in the promised land was on his mind. And it also says that it was an everlasting possession in chapter 48, verse 4. This was on Jacob's mind in his final days. Additionally, if you still don't believe me, verse 40, uh, chapter 46, verse 4, here is right after I will prosper you in, in Egypt and grow you. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you back. This is likely referring to geographic location, being brought back to the promised land. Moreover, we have sort of an inspired commentary in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. It says, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, worshipped. 
what is the point in mentioning all of these things? Well, I think there's a good case to be made that Jacob's dying moments involve trust in the sovereignty of God and his plan. And so he worshipped in faith, knowing God would continue to bring about his sovereign plan in accordance with the promise, even after Jacob's own death. This week, dying Jacob was thankful for God's sovereignty and had faith in God's ability to do all of the things that God had promised, even things that Jacob himself had no control over. Why? He was dying. A dying man can't necessarily bury himself, can he? God would bring Jacob to his desired end in Jacob recognizing that this was happening, that I'm going to be buried in the land where my fathers are buried, the promised land, this causes Jacob to worship. Understanding the certainty in the, 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 these two first two points, that it can't be stopped and that it's a blessing, understanding those things should lead us to a life of faith and worship. The life of a saint who understands God's sovereignty is a life of worship. One commentary I was reading pointed out that there's evidence to suggest that Jacob in 47, by referring to himself as a sojourner uh, before Pharaoh, right, we saw that, and establishing this oath relating to, you know, in some sense to covenantal features, makes the case that this could, could be worship as an expression of the hope, the eschatological or the future hope that he had a better home prepared by God in his sovereign plan. The thing with God's sovereign plan, though, is we need to have faith in him. We need, to, we need to trust and listen and understand, just understand the sovereign plan. And friends, he's revealed, like I said, much of that plan to us in his word. Though we are weak and though we cannot necessarily bring the plan of God about, we're finite, we're humans, we're limited we can still trust and we can still worship that God is in control. Jacob, as he is dying, as he is weak, knows this and understands this and has faith and so worships. He knows the sovereign plan of the Lord will come to pass. He's reassured of this again when Joseph agrees to bury him in, in the land of Canaan. And we know indeed that when, jo jo when Jacob wakes up, he will see that land. For Jacob, God's sovereign plan resulted in, in faith in God to bring about what he had said, and it caused worship. And I think, again, the same should be true of us, not only when we're on our deathbed, but even now, in the sense, we are weak like, like jo uh, Jacob in, in, in many senses. We don't really have control that we think we do, but you know, God does, and we can still have faith, and we can worship the way that Jacob worshipped, trusting that God can bring about his plan. Just as he said, he is faithful to keep every promise of his word. And friends, we should have such a grasp of that, such a certainty of that sovereign plan that it causes us to bow down and worship as well, that it causes us to have faith, faith to preach with certainty, Faith that isn't necessarily even afraid of death. Faith that can worship amidst illness and death. 
faith in God and his ability to bring about his unstoppable plan of blessing for those that are his. And as we mentioned earlier, if you believe in Jesus, then you and I know, we know with certainty that we will live forever with the Lord. It's in the word. It's part of the plan. It's promised. That is part of the sovereign plan. And if we die, we know we will be resurrected. God has shared this with us. Will we believe? Will we look at these things and have faith in them in such a way where we too bow and worship? As we just watch, watch God and his, his plan unfold.